everyone, this is Sherelle Jardine, and this is Make a Scene Canada on Pacific Northwest Radio. Make a Scene Canada is a go-to for discovering new artists, as well it's a place to hang out with our Canadian icons. I absolutely love, and it's my great pleasure to bring you the songs and stories of our world-class Canadian musicians and introduce you to our industry leaders as well. Make a Scene Canada is sponsored by Zed Productions. Zed Productions is a full-service production company offering the best studios and services to suit your project and budget. From producing to recording and mixing, contact Sheldon Zaharko at sheldonzaharko.com. There is a lot that goes into running this station and its podcasts, and while we do bring it to you for free, we could use some support to keep running and growing. Any contributions, no matter how small, are appreciated. If you love the show and would like to donate to Make a Scene Canada, go to PacificNorthwestRadio.com and click on the top right where it says Contribute and become a patron of the station and Make a Scene Canada. Click on Become a Patron and then you'll have a few options. You can make a custom pledge and donate whatever you'd like or for as little as a buck a month, you can help us keep the station and Make a Scene Canada rocking. You can also become an official sponsor of any one of our podcasts or online radio station. All details are on the contribute section as well. And you can always get in touch with us. Our email is pacificnorthwestradio at gmail.com. And in the subject line for Make a Scene Canada or Pacific Northwest Radio or maybe one of our other programs and find them all on pacificnorthwestradio.com. We've just started to dive into the Bitcoin world for the station. If you sign up for your own account... You'll get $10 to invest in various cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin, Ethereum, Tether, and Bitcoin Cash, just to name a few. It's easy and fun, and why not get into the game? When you sign up and put $100 into your account and buy Bitcoin, you can refer a friend, and when they invest $100, you're going to get $50 to invest. And if you want to learn more about buying cryptocurrency, click on our homepage and follow the NetCoins link. If you're looking for past Make a Scene Canada shows, all of the back shows are on Pacific Northwest Radio. Just click on the Make a Scene Canada show icon on the home page, and there you'll find them. You can also find us on iTunes, Spotify, iHeartRadio, plus a whole array of sites all waiting for you to discover. Right now, while you're listening to the show, find us on social media, Instagram and Facebook at Make a Scene Canada. We also have a group page, Make a Scene BC, where you can post your upcoming gigs. Don't forget to give Pacific Northwest Radio a like on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Pacific Northwest Radio. Okay, let's have some fun. I'm so excited to share this interview with you. I had the chance to speak to legendary Canadian musician and author Greg Godovitz. We'll be talking about his music, his books, in particular his newest Up Close and Uncomfortable and his hot sauce. Hello, Sherelle. Hey, Greg. How's it going? Not bad, you know, COVID-wise. Oh, COVID. It's yeah, just gross. Know, I'm building another a wall in my living room, so I have a different wall to crawl up next week. Oh, awesome. <laughs> yeah, so it doesn't look much for the sight lines in the room, but at least it'll be something for us to, you know, climb up and climb up the other side and just a fresh wall to crawl up. It's a good idea. Have you actually got like little things on the wall so you can like, you know, how you do the rock climbing? You can actually, you know, have something to grab onto? Freestanding, I think, in between the couches. Okay. 
tourists scoped it out. I got so much artwork on the walls, I'd hate to mess anything up. So I think we have to build a freestanding wall so we can crawl up that instead. That's a good idea. Anyway, you should take no, a picture. No, I'm not. But in other words, yeah, we're losing our minds is what I'm saying here. We're losing our minds, absolutely. You know, every day that this goes on, it's just like, oh, my God. when When's it going to end? Yeah, yeah, it's it's this is pretty scary. I mean, uh, I've never I, I've never seen anything in my lifetime like this. No, I don't think any of us have. And I a mean, year. Yeah, yeah, I know it's crazy. Yeah, it's a year. That's nuts. It's been a year today, I think, actually. Oh man, oh. Greg, you have a new book out called Up Close and Uncomfortable, and we're going to talk about that. But I hope you'll indulge me just a little bit. I can dig into your past. Is that okay? Yes. Okay, awesome. So you've had an amazing career over the years, playing in bands, the Backdoor Blues Band, the Pigs, Sherman and Peabody, the Mushroom Castle, the Carpet Frogs, the Anger Brothers, the Pretty Ones, Flood, and Gatto. Now, Flood and Gatto, Flood had eight top 10 hits, and Gatto released 11 albums. So out of those bands, which was your favorite, and which band do you think you learned the most from? Oh, trick question right Mm -hmm. off the top. I know, I thought I'd get you early. Well, yeah, you did, actually. Uh, and I was like, when I hear a question I've never asked before, so that gives me pause for thought. Okay. Uh, I mean, in their in their way, they were all really great experiences. I mean, the Pretty Ones was the first band in 1964. So, you know, the Beatles had just broken over here. Everybody and their brother wanted to be in a rock band, mm-hmm. including guys like Tom Petty and Bruce Springsteen and the Birds and millions of other guys that eventually would, you know, do just that. But I met Brian Pilling uh, in grade nine at high school. I was just 13. I I got into high school a bit early. And uh, I think Brian was 14 or 15. And we hit it off like a house on fire. Hmm. And he told me that his big brother was coming back from England. And he played the drums. And I was learning how to play the bass. And he was playing guitar. And we really started practicing. You know, I mean, we, we, we got good quite fast. Uh, and I remember the three of us could sing really, you, you wouldn't have thought it was children singing. It just had this natural, we tried to sound like the records. So, you know, we were putting on a bit of the accent and stuff like that, but, but we could really sing. I mean, by the time I think I was 14, uh, my mom worked at the Friars Tavern downtown, which is where, uh, the, the band Levon and the Hawks started after they left Ronnie Hawkins and oh, cool. David Clayton Thomas from Blood, Sweat and Tears would come in and I saw many of the jazz greats there and I would go there when I was 13. By the time I was 14, Mr. Josie, who was the uh, the manager there, he let us come down and sit in with Levon and the Hawks one afternoon. Oh, wow. And, and then these disc jockeys came and took us, they, they were freaked that we were so young and took us up to a place called Club 888 which was an R&B dance hall, held about 1,200 people. And we went up as children and were playing in front of these people. And it wasn't just that we were cute little kids in beetle jackets and stuff. I mean, we could really play. And we were doing the songs of the day, Beatles, Stones, Kinks, Searchers, Jerry the Pacemakers, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. So that one was really good. And then I was 15 and Brian and Ed Pilling went to England and I couldn't go. I mean, my parents were pretty lenient, but they said, we're not letting our 15 year old kid go and live in England. (laughs) Sorry. So so they, yeah. However, they, they did let me sleep outside when I was 12 in front of Maple Leaf Gardens for Beatle tickets. And I had hundreds of dollars in schoolmates money uh, stuck in, stuck in my pants. 
uh, they let me do that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so they, they were pretty cool. Yeah, I slept outside in the cold, you know, all oh, night geez. waiting for the Beatles box office to open. Uh, there was a few other kids there, though. Uh, so anyway, Ed and Brian went to England. They ended up joining Cat Stevens' band uh, when he had his first records out over there, Matthew and Son and I Love My Dog and these early hits. Mm-hmm. And I joined, I, I took an ad, I, I answered an ad in the newspaper for a singing bass player. And uh, I was 15, but I told the guy I was 16 because I thought it made me sound more mature. <laughs> and I got the gig, and uh, these guys were a Chicago blues band. And when I when they played me a song, I said, "Well, I know that." When the Rolling Stones wrote that, and they go, they said, "Well, actually, the Rolling Stones didn't write these songs." Mm-hmm. Guys like you know John Lee Hooker and Muddy Waters and Howlin' Wolf and these guys, they wrote the songs. So instantly at 15, I got a crash course in. Chicago blues and Delta blues by these guys. Uh, these guys would morph into different guys at different times. We the next band was the Mushroom Castle, which had Eddie Schwartz in it that wrote "Hit Me with Your Best Shot" for Pat Benatar, right? And a couple of other pretty famous musicians. And then we got back with some of the other guys and became Sherman and Peabody, which was Buzz Sherman from Moxie. And the other guys would go on to be in a one of the seminal blues bands in Canada called Whiskey Howl. Mm. Uh, by this time, Ed and Brian came back, and I joined Flood. They put Flood together. They had ended up the bass player, but uh, I knew them, of course, when we were school children together. And I said, "You really got to get him out and get me in." And they did. His <laughs> degree, and that's that's where the recording really started. I mean, Brian and Ed were incredibly gifted songwriters. Uh, but I mean, they, they were writing, they were writing original music in 1964 because i remember we recorded in the guy's basement in windsor ontario and we recorded two original songs that they'd written and then i think we did a kink song and a Beatles song and a stone song and, and uh, i sure wish i'd never let that tape out because boy that thing would be worth a fortune no today kidding. yeah i lent it to somebody that was in the the mushroom castle and i never got it back oh, <laughs> so somewhere Somewhere floating out there is our Brian and Ed and myself, our first ever demo, you know. Mm. I'd love to hear that again. But anyway, so after that, it got to the point, you know, we did cross-Canada tours. We went to England to record at Richard Branson's studio, The Manor. We went to San Francisco and recorded in San Mateo. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we were working with uh, Freddie Catero, who produced all the, engineered all the Santana albums and Barbara Streisand and people like that. Oh, so man. it was pretty heady stuff when you're 19 years old, yeah. you know? And already, I mean, between the time of 13 to 19, I'd already lived one entire musical life. Yeah. You know, I, like it was like my childhood went away uh, in some respects because all of a sudden you're cast in adult scenarios. But at the same time, you know, I'm almost 70 now, and I'm still acting like a 13-year-old. That's awesome. So so it's like you're having a lifelong childhood, yeah. <laughs> courtesy of the music business, you know? Yeah, no kidding. And then, so it, the, the writing was on the wall. I was writing some pretty good songs that became Gatto standards during the flood period. And they would have a listen to them, but it was, nah, you know, we, we, we got a handle on this. And I think it was one day my mom was talking to Brian Pilling and said, you know, she said, Greg is writing some really good songs that he's played for me. You know, why don't you guys have a listen to what he's doing? And he said, Mrs. Godovitz, with all respect, Flood is my band, and I write the songs for it. Hmm. 
And when she told me that, I, I quit within a month. I thought, well, the, the writing's on the wall here. I mean, they're never going to do my songs. Yeah, no kidding. And I left and uh, formed Gatto. And, uh, you know, within a year, we had our first album. And uh, then just things started taking off really fast and, until we had 11 albums, you know? Mm. Yeah, yeah, I can't really put my hand on any one particular experience because they were all great. You mm -hmm. know, everything was like a, every day was like a new learning curve. And we were doing, you know, things like uh, with the pretty ones, like we would drive from Toronto to Windsor without a gig in our little English uh, Bedford van. And uh, we arrive, we find a club and say, hey, we're a, we're a rock band from Toronto. The guy says, uh, I'll pay you five dollars each. So we made twenty dollars. Oh, and because the place was an old uh, funeral home, uh, Brian and I slept in two broken coffins in the basement. <laughs> Wow. And it wasn't scary. It was just like, you know, they were nice. They were cozy and they were, uh, <laughs> and they were, you know, silk lined. Silk. Padded. You know, <laughs> <laughs> it was nice. I wish you had some pictures of that. That's crazy. Yeah. Well, you know, back then, unless you had someone with a camera around. And there, there were mm. some girls that became lifelong friends of ours that came over from Detroit. And they, uh, they followed us everywhere. I'm sure they've got photographs. I know I picked their brains when I wrote the first book. I got a hold of them, tracked them down again, and said, look, at I'm writing a book, and I I need some in information from your standpoint about what we were all about. And that was pretty good. But I can't recall ever getting any pictures. I, my mom had pictures of us in 64. Oh, wow. And, and then, of course, now I've got tens of thousands of photographs that people have sent me, or you see them on the Internet now. And mm hmm it sure makes writing a new book really easy. <laughs> no kidding. No kidding. Now, I want to yeah. talk to you also. So you released a solo album, Amuse Me, with Paul Dean from Loverboy. We'd been friends forever because at one point uh, when they were putting the band together in Calgary, Loverboy, I got a call from their manager, Bruce Allen, who mm -hmm. said, uh, uh, he said, it's Bruce Allen calling from, he's very official. Yeah. Greg, it's Bruce Allen calling from Calgary. Uh, <laughs> we, uh, we're putting together a Canadian supergroup and your name came up. And I said, well, Thanks, Bruce, but I'm already in one, and I hung up the phone. Oh, jeez. <laughs> Not too many people could do that to Bruce Allen, yeah, but I'm sure you thought, look at this little PR on the other end of the phone. But uh, Paul and I laugh about it today. He he still laughs a bit louder because, you know, he did make that 10 million bucks that I didn't. Mm. And uh, But we're still great friends, and so, you know, I knew he was in Calgary when I got there, and we started hanging out. I started getting him out of the house which his wife, Denise, said was almost, she's, I'm so thankful that you're here because he doesn't leave the house for anything. Now, every Sunday night, Paul and I would end up at this little club in Calgary called the Blues Can, and we would host a jam session so people could come down and play with us. And, of course, people were lined up to come mm -hmm, down and play with of course. us. And uh, I started writing these songs, uh, all the ones that appeared on Amuse Me and more. Uh, I met a girl there, and... The songs just fell out. I mean, every day I was writing another song. Wow. But they weren't they weren't just love songs. I mean, the first song on the album, Searching for Love, is a really good love ballad. But then a couple of songs later, it's I Ain't Your Jesus. Mm. <laughs> it, it wasn't very nice, you know. Yeah. I was basically calling her a religious hypocrite, you know. I said to her, I said, what do you think? She goes, I hate it. Oh. So what do you mean? She goes, you're calling me a hypocrite. I said, you are a hypocrite. Oh, jeez. Right? Write your own song about Jesus, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and then, then I wrote, uh, I wrote a song about her called "Letting You Go Gets Easier Each Day." Oh God! <laughs> sure, is... she appreciated those. 
Well, they were great songs. I mean, they really were. Uh, when I look at the original lyrics to them, there's nothing scratched out. They, they, they fell out like they were written themselves. Wow, you know, you see maybe the odd word crossed out, but it wasn't like when you see some songwriters and it's just like scratches and, you know, add this here and stuff. The, the lyrics just came out. Hmm. And the music did, too. So Paul said, I'm going back to Vancouver. Uh, we should record these songs. So we grabbed... By this time, I knew everybody in the city. I knew who all the best sax players were, all the best keyboard players, drummers. We put a big crew of guys together and went in and recorded the, the songs. Then Paul took them away. And uh, I remember going to a concert at one of the arenas there, his saddle dome. Loverboy was playing with Journey. And Mike Reno took me aside and said, all he does is work on your album. He goes... If we're in the bus, he's got his headphones on working on your album. If he's in his hotel room, if he's in the dressing room, if he's on an airplane, all he does is work on your record. Wow. And I was, I mean, that's Paul Dean. I mean, yeah. you know, he's one of the greatest musicians this country's ever produced, although he doesn't get the respect. And uh, a great songwriter in his own uh, right, you know. And then when he played me the songs, I mean, I was just like, gobsmacked at how good I, was. I said Jesus this is my album you know mm -hmm. these are my songs but boy his input was so good at one point one of the engineers in uh, Calgary said doesn't it bother you that there's a lot of these ideas are yours and yet you're giving Paul full credit well, I said no not at all mm -hmm. <laughs> he said why I said because whatever the ratio was of my ideas to his I would have never thought of the stuff he came up with so yeah. <laughs> that's okay with me as mm -hmm. far as i'm concerned he's the guy that produced this record yeah I, I i never liked it when you bought an album and it was like you know produced by directed by starring mm -hmm. him on kazoo right. same guy's name all the way like 50 and guys do that and i always laugh i said man you really don't have to we all know yeah <laughs> you know? yeah exactly <laughs> yeah you'd have to ram it down our throats we know who did what you know <laughs> Um, I would love to play one of those songs on the show today. Which song would you suggest, and what's the meaning behind it? I would go for "Searching, Searching for Love." Okay, because that—that's the first one we did. Okay, cool. And uh, I remember Paul playing me a song by another band. For the life of me, I can't remember who they were, and it just kept building and building. And of course, I would. I would have just counted the song in and everybody plays it. But as you're going to hear, it's so layered. Like it starts out with, you know, a synthesizer and then one lonely guitar and then the drums come in and then the mm -hmm. bass falls in. And then, you know, pretty soon it's building to this crescendo and then it crashes down again until it's nothing again. Mm. And, and I thought that was a great idea that Paul came up with for that, you know. Well, I'm really looking forward to having that and sharing it with those people that haven't heard that song yet. Well, you should check out the whole album because it's, it's, well, I remember when I came back, Mike Reno came back to me conspiratorially at another Loverboy gig and he grabbed me, took me in this room and he goes, your new album is a masterpiece. He says, and I don't say that about too many things. He says, it's the best thing you've ever recorded. I said, well, you can thank your brother Paul for that one, man. You know? Wow. I can't, I'm really but excited I, now. Yeah, I've had a long, great re 
association with the guys in Loverboy, you know. If they're in town, we hang out. If I'm in town, we hang out. Never had an argument with any of them. It's always been good, you know. Awesome. And then talk about the coalition a little bit. Was that after? Well, yeah, the coalition happened when I came back to Toronto. Okay. Um, And guys I'd been working with, uh, you know, I had Gatto still going, sort of. Uh, but I really wanted to do the songs off Amuse Me. And I knew the only way I was going to do it was to form a completely new band with guys capable of playing the level of excellence that was on this record. Uh, so, you know, I got Otto's original drummer came in to play, Marty, mm-hmm. amazing musician, great singer. So I knew I had the extra vocals. And then a guy we went to school with uh, named Gord McKinnon, who's a doctor of music. So does he know his way around yeah. the keyboard? Uh, <laughs> yeah, he's, he's he's like having a one-man orchestra. So all of the strings and stuff we had. And then I got um, uh, two guitar players. One of them played with Alfie Zappacosta's band, and the other guy played with the Sin City Boys. Uh, two completely d- distinct style of guitar player. One was like a steely dan real jazzy player the other guy was like pete townsend and i played bass even though i didn't want to mm-hmm. and then we got gene hardy and playing tenor saxophone it was a miraculous band because when you hear the songs on amuse me we played the whole album we we learned the whole album note for note and it just we only played two gigs Oh, and then man. something something went sideways i invested a ton of money thousands of dollars into getting this right and i lost my shirt because we only played two gigs and then it just sort of everybody just sort of disappeared Hmm. you know i mean i made sure they all got paid i Mm -hmm. ended up broke of course but at some point i'd love to you know get these guys back together because the two gigs that we did and i think there is some stuff out there on youtube of the coalition playing at this place in toronto called the duke it was two magic nights of music i mean it sounded just like the album and people weren't yelling out for Gatto songs. They weren't yelling out, where's Gino, where's Doug? Mm-hmm. They listened to the first song and we did them in order and they were listening and going, Jesus, these are really good songs and they're catchy. And I already know them first here, you know? Yeah. And then we threw in a couple of Gatto songs that I can't get away from, like uh, Under My Hat, which yes. sounded great with the sax player. And oh, the I bet. Yeah. And a sweet thing we have to do, even though it's got suspect subject matter. Well, yeah, no kidding. (laughs) I revisited that song. I was like, oh, yeah, I remember listening to it when I was younger, and it was like, rock on, and now people are like, hmm. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it's a little bit, a little bit Me Too era kind of Mm -hmm. stuff, actually. Hashtag, yeah. Yeah, so, but, you know, I mean, I wrote it when I was young. Yes. It was all sort of innocent, not really. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it was a true story so what can you do but you know i was really i was just really happy with the way things were going and then of course uh i put Gatto to bed for good with the original lineup uh in around i guess 2018 i mean it was just to the point where like people's priorities in life switch from Let's be the greatest rock band of all time to, hey, let's see how drunk we can get. Mm. 
and walk on stage. Let's see how many drugs I could do and stumble off the stage. Yeah. I'd had enough of it. I mean, I wasn't that guy anymore. Yeah. I had I had my round with it when I was younger. Of course, like everybody. Mm-hmm. But, you know, am I but my most so- sober days are when I'm gigging. Mm-hmm. No drugs, no alcohol. At the end of the night, once I get home, I drive myself home. I'll crack open a bottle of wine. Yeah. But, you know, during the day and at the gig, straight at six o'clock, because we owe it to the people to perform well. Absolutely. You know? the, the days of them wanting to see, you know, these guys that try to be Keith Richards stumbling around the stage and falling over. Nobody cares about that stuff anymore. It's an embarrassment now. It's an embarrassment. Yeah. yeah. You're in the music business. Even Keith Richards doesn't do it, for God's sake. Mm-hmm. He invented it. Yeah. Yeah. No kidding. (laughs) Yeah. So we have a few things in common besides being musicians. You also hosted a self-produced radio show, Rock Talk, for two years on Toronto's CFRB, which focused on Canadian and international music industry people, authors, and behind-the-scenes industry movers and shakers. So over those two years, give me one interview that really stands out for you. Uh, Well... I, I got to I got to basically I produced the show as well as hosted it and wrote mm-hmm. it. So it was like on Monday morning we had Sunday off, we did the live show, Sunday's off. Monday morning I go, which one of my heroes do I want to deal with this week? So I'd start phoning around the record companies and saying, Who you got in town? We got Ray Davis from the Kinks. Can I get him on my show? We'd love to have him on your show. Mm-hmm. So I go down to the Hyatt down in Yorkville and uh, go knock on the room. He wouldn't come to the studio. He wouldn't. I go, I have to go to him. Not a problem. He won't let me in the room. So a couple of his aides bring out a couch out into the hallway of the hotel. This is where we're going to conduct the interview. I got my technician with me recording. Mm Mm-hmm. And I sit on the couch with Ray, and I'm asking him, and I really prided myself on questions. I mean, because I've had, and not this one, but I've had so many bad interviews over the years where you just tell that people don't know a bloody thing about you, or they haven't read the book, or I mean, they just haven't done their homework. Exactly. You know, obviously you have, and I'm impressed. So I asked him these great questions, because I could go deep into his past, and I was getting, yeah, no. Don't remember. Oh. Like this, that guy, you know? Yikes. So I finally, after about 20 minutes, I said, you know, Ray, I've always considered you the Charles Dickens of rock and roll. And he goes, with that Ray Davis voice, really? And he's got this, that little Ray Davis smile, Uh a little Harlequin smile. Really? How do you figure that? He says. I said, well, look at, you know, Dead End Street, you know, you describe perfectly what life in Dickens times were like. Crack up in the ceiling and the kitchen sink is leaking. So I'm quoting him his lyrics back. And I can see that he's warming, you know. Right. I mean, who? which songwriter wouldn't want to be referred to as the Charles Dickens of anything? Oh, my God. No kidding. Yeah. So I had him and I knew I had him. Mm-hmm. Then we started talking about, I said, and also it's it's like the inherent humor that you, you put in into your songs and once again he wants where do you see the humor in my music i said well for starters uh ducks on the wall on soap opera and he starts singing my baby's got the most deplorable taste 
but the biggest mistake is hanging over the fireplace. And then I come in with the Dave Davis part. She's got ducks, ducks on a wall, ducks, ducks hanging on a wall. So it was like an English thing where they, they used to always have these four ducks, ceramic ducks over the fireplace. And I'm singing it, and then he starts singing. I mean, he starts singing it, and I started doing the harmonies. Oh, my God. And I'm thinking to myself, this has gone from, you know, no, yeah, 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 to us singing together. Oh, man. So that one really jumps out, you know, because it was it was just that good, yeah. you know. And then another time I had Ray Manzarek from The Doors on. I don't mm -hmm. know if you've ever seen any Ray Manzarek interviews, but it's the same every time. Hey, man. Jim, man. It was like working with Dionysus, man. You know, he was like a shaman, you know. He'd be like twirling around. It was it was like having Dionysus on Earth, man. Jim, he was a shaman. <laughs> so, okay, good enough. You're boring. Mm -hmm. So I asked him a good question. He says, oh, great question, man. I'll tell you. It was about Jim. You know, he was he was like Dionysus, you know. <sighs> That's all he ever talks about. Jeez. So I, I, then I asked him a zinger. And for the life of me, I can't remember. I've got the questions, but they're at the University of Toronto in the archives. Uh, I've got the questions that I asked him, and it was a real low shot. I mean, it was oh. a real. It went from, you know, Jim Dionysus, Shaman and all that, to he goes, oh, man, what a low question. What a low blow, man. Why would you ask me something like that? Oh. Man? So I said, well, look, man, this is what your your fans want to know about, man. You know, they, mm -hmm. they just don't want to want to know about. It. We all know that Jim was Dionysus, you know. And I said, okay, I'll tell you what. Let's change tack. I said, you wrote a book on the Civil War. Why, why did you pick the Civil War? He goes, well, why not, man? Oh, jeez. I, I said, so in this voice, I said, oh, okay, man. I said, uh, you know, I'll tell you what. Uh, if you don't want, and he hung up on. Me. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> so I can I continued for another couple of minutes interviewing myself as him, and awesome. all I was doing was going. So uh, okay, now that we're back on track, I said, uh, "You and Robbie uh, Krieger, well, you know, man, you know, I don't really talk to." And, and my co-host is going, "What are you doing?" And I said, "Well, he hung up on me, you know." Jeez. He says, "Yeah, but you, you can't continue the the interview like you're him." I said, "Why not? I'm doing it." And the next day, I got a call from the head of the station, and he says. He says, I listened to your show last night. He said, um, I have to tell you, that was extremely entertaining and funny, but don't do it again. Don't do it again, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You can't pretend to be the guest, no. okay? You can't do that. I said, well, he hung up on me, man. He says, as he should have. You <laughs> you hit him with a really low blow question. Oh, man. I said, I said that's because I don't like the guy anyway, to tell yeah. you the truth. I didn't even want him on the show. But one of his guys at the record company knew he had a new book to promote, like I'm doing. Mm. So I caught him on. And and it actually happened again a couple of other times. But, I mean, I talked to, you know, I'd have guys, Denny Doherty came on from the Mamas and Papas. And then... Afterwards, I said, you know, I live not far from here. My girlfriend's Moroccan. She's making a Moroccan feast. You want to come over for dinner? Yeah, man. So we're sitting at the dinner table. We have the Moroccan feast. Then the guitars come out. And I'm singing with Danny Doherty. And I'm thinking to myself, this is the guy that sang Monday, Monday mm. and California Dreaming. Yeah. And I'm harmonizing with him, you know. And he says, he looks at me, he goes, how come I've never heard of you before? Oh, and I, said, I said, well, because you moved to the California and became a huge rock god, and I stayed in Toronto, you know. 
he says, we got to do some work together. We have to we have to record together and write some music together. Four days later, he died. Oh, God. Yeah. Wow. So, so we were on track. I talked to him when they took him in the hospital. I called him up and I said, I'm going to come down and see you on Tuesday. And uh, and he passed away. Something uh-huh. really horrible happened, and he died like overnight. Jeez, yeah, that's awful. But, but that happened. Well, th- this is, there's a weird sidebar to this story is that the phone the phone started ringing instantly when he passed because people knew I'd had him on the show mm-hmm. and that he'd been to my house, including my own station phoning me up, call after call after call. I wouldn't pick up the phone. I wasn't going to say anything. Next thing I know, I hear my girlfriend on the phone. She goes, well, Greg wouldn't do that. No, I'm I'm sorry to hear about your father, but Greg wouldn't do that. And she hung up and she says, that was Denny's daughter. And she is absolutely beside herself with anger that thinking that you would phone CFRB and blow the whistle that her father was dead before the family knew about it. I said, well, you know, I didn't do that. Hmm. So that was what her, I finally, when things settled down, I finally got her on the phone and said, I told her the whole story of, of us wanting to work together and stuff. And I said, and I, I just want you to know, I feel really bad for you, but I wouldn't do something like that. Mm-hmm. I mean, I even had my own boss phoning me up looking for a quote and I wouldn't give it to him. So wow. I was, I was prepared to get fired to maintain your honor, you know? Yeah, no kidding. Jeez. That's... But we had a lot of people from the show would show up at the house, uh, you know, at one point I had uh, Pete and Rogue Best. Pete Best from the Beatles. Okay. And and, and his half-brother Rogue, who was Neil Aspinall's son, because Neil was knocking off uh, Pete and Rogue's mother, Mona. Uh, Pete, of course, or uh, Neil was the road manager for the Beatles during the Beatlemania and then became the president of Apple Records. Mm-hmm. So it was great because I, I have a house full of original Beatles memorabilia. But I never took them down into the basement to see it. I thought, they're here for a Beatles conference and they're going to get driven nuts for the next three days. Yeah. Let's let's give them a Beatle-free evening. No kidding. You know, and meanwhile, I had a museum's worth of stuff in the basement. And funnily enough, now they own a Beatles museum on Matthew Street in Liverpool. And I sent Rogue a message the other day saying, I've got a whole bunch of stuff yeah. <laughs> for sale if you're interested, but they want it for free. I'm not, I'm not about to give. I might give them one good piece, but everything in my collection, except for gifts that people have given me, like Lego Yellow Submarine or something, something I would never buy. Mm-hmm. All the stuff I've got is circa when they were together oh okay so yeah so it's all the old old stuff you know like uh, i've got all the original movie posters i mean there were thousands of dollars yeah uh, I, i've got the, the rarest piece i've got i have uh the 1964 february the 5th newspaper front newspaper story from the baltimore evening sun and the cat there's a picture of the four beetles and they're in the line, John, Paul, George, and Ringo, the way we're supposed to say it. But it was George, John, Paul, Ringo. Ringo was the only guy that actually, you know, was underneath his picture. In the right spot, yeah. So people didn't, they, they, they didn't even know who they were then. And, and the caption was, revered across Britain and uh, the British Isles and Europe, the Beatles are coming. And it was the first uh, newspaper in North America to pre-announce the arrival of the Fabs. That's got to be the rarest piece I've got. Oh, totally. Wow. 
Yeah, and it's a full front page. And I found it framed with that dedication in a pawn shop up north of Toronto. It cost me like 50 bucks or something. I went, I'll take that. Yeah. You know? Wow. What a piece to hold on to. I'll send you some pictures of some of this stuff I've been telling you about. Oh, that'd be awesome. You're a huge music supporter, and I love that you're working with the downtown young BIA, encouraging live music. Now, before the pandemic, were they really supportive of the music scene? And are you making any plans for post-pandemic with with the downtown Toronto scene? Well, yeah. And also, uh, we started uh, on my Greg Godovich YouTube channel. When COVID first hit, my gal and I went around filming public service announcements, me with the guitar, going to famous music venue places were now like empty fields and stuff Mm -hmm. and you know i'm talking about i'm looking around there's nothing there anymore and then singing a song that was appropriate and then going around trying to get business drummed up for restaurants and stuff because we could see our friends going out of business yeah and it it was starting to work and there's a number of them managed to keep their businesses floating because still to this day we're always like twice a week we get takeout from someplace and then we brag on how good the food is to get them some business I came back after living in Calgary, where they have the National Music Center, so to speak, mm-hmm. uh, even though like it's, but I know it's a new building, but they really need a lot of uh, more input on what goes in there. I thought, we need a Toronto History Museum, we, the, just, the, just the history of Toronto. Everybody else will be taken care of in Calgary and the National Museum eventually. Mm-hmm. But we need we need a, a building, a bricks and mortar building dedicated to the music of Toronto. And I'm talking jazz, blues, country, alternative, indie, heavy metal, pop, any any genre you could think, and we will find stuff to put in. That's when I met the guy from his name's Mark Garner from the uh, downtown young BIA. So I'd seen this guy, and he was going around and getting plaques made for. Uh, the different clubs that were on Young Street where all these famous people got their start. And I thought, I, l- I like what this guy's doing. Mm-hmm. We could be friends and we become great friends. And then he had this um, he had this building. Uh, I think the pictures are in the... Did, did, did they give you a Kindle copy of my book? They He gave me a bunch of links and I'm sure Kindle's yeah. on there, yeah. Okay, because there's a picture towards the end of the book of this building downtown in Toronto where they painted both sides of the building 22 stories high with all the pioneers of, of Toronto rock, Young Street rock and roll and stuff. Yeah, like Ronnie but, Hawkins know, and Oscar Peterson. And... Yep, they're, they're all on the one side. Ronnie, I think it's Ron, I, I got him in my I got him in my living room here, actually. I got replicas of him. Uh, Ronnie Hawkins, Glenn Gould, Oscar Peterson, Jackie Shane. That one freaked me out. Jackie was the first transgender singer in toronto and awesome. anywhere uh great r&b singer diane brooks gordon lightfoot all the way down even bb king and muddy waters because they played on young street quite a bit when they were young mm. and then on the other side of the building they called me up and they said you're going on the other side of the That's building awesome. and I, went, I said well who's on it and they said well the band uh david clayton thomas lonnie johnson uh simone what Gatto, uh, Rush, Dizzy Gillespie, Carol Pope, Kim Mitchell, the Mandela. Wow. I said, hang on a sec, hang on. I said, did you say Rush, Gatto? And he, and he says, yeah. I said, how big is this building? He says, 22 stories high. I said, it's not going to happen, man. He goes, what do you mean? I said, 
you're going to try and get my nose and Getty Lee's nose on a building that's only 22 <laughs> stories high? He just started laughing. He says, well, we'll put you guys on a balcony. There you go. Yeah. But I got it hanging in my living room here, and I went down, and I mean, that thing's going to be there long after I'm dead. And it, it, when I think that I got my start, you know, on Young Street at 13, playing in the Friars Tavern, doing matinees, and all of a sudden, you know, there you are on a building okay. for the rest of the time. Oh, my God. Uh, pretty big honor. That's you know? crazy. Now, I'm a Toronto girl. I was born in Toronto, and I'm trying to envision Young Street and what? What's the cross corner? In between Girard and uh, College Street. Oh, okay. So it's just like it's one short city block, and from any corner on uh, Girard and Young, you can see – actually, what you can see is me. I'm right on the left-hand side of it, so the first – person you see is me flying through the air uh from that chum city uh event that we did years ago and uh you know i was there when the guy was painting it i would go down all the time just to watch how it was coming along and going you know this this is phenomenal i mean i'm gonna be i don't know who knows how long i got left to live but this will be here when my granddaughters are grown up you know it's amazing yeah, I, so, I can't wait to see it if, if we ever get back there, you know. It's, yeah, it's, it's pretty cool. And now if we get the the venue that we want, uh, we're supposed to be having – I am now officially on the board of directors for the Toronto Music Museum. Oh, so cool. So that little dream is going to come true. And then as Mark says, he says, you are the best hunter-gatherer in history. You can find anything. <laughs> and, uh, and it's true, and I can find anyone too. I mean, Eddie Kramer called me the other day and said – I recorded some tracks with Keith Richards when we were doing the Elmo live album at a studio downtown. I said it was called Sounds Interchange. He said, how do you know that? I said, because I know the guy you're looking for. And he says, yes, he was the engineer. I said, I'll find him. It took me a full day, and I found him after 40 years. Oh, wow. And hooked him back up with Eddie Kramer. So that was pretty cool, yeah, cool no to kidding. do that. You're, yeah. like, you're like the detective, the rock detective. <laughs> <laughs> I, it, it's like what I did during my uh, my radio uh, show days. I could find anybody, you know, and very few of them said no. They'd say, yeah, sure, you can get him on the show. Yeah. You know? Wow. That's awesome. Tenacity, young lady. Tenacity. Yes, absolutely. Now, because you are a huge music supporter, I just wondered, have you ever heard of the Canadian Musicians Coalition? Yes, I have. We have a petition right now that our MP, Ron McKinnon, is actually taking to the House of Commons. The petition is to create an ongoing Canadian Musicians Support Fund, which will provide sustainable financial relief to professional musicians so they can earn an annual living wage. You know when I talk about Spotify and how ridiculous, you know, the streaming companies are when they pay us, you know, our point zero zero three cents per stream. I've never made a penny off any of that stuff. I know. It's I mean, brutal. it's ridiculous, and it, it's it's funny because the odd time with the, the amount of uh, social media stuff that it involves my name, my mm-hmm. band's names, people said, "Oh, I bought those songs yeah. when they came out." I'm thinking, I've never made a penny yeah. from them, but somebody's making money. Yeah, I can't believe the amount of people, musicians, that are starving to death out there yeah. right now. It's all they've got. I know. It's it's you know? brutal. Like we we're so thankful. Like my husband Mark plays with Prism. And so, you know, all those big shows like you guys, like all the big festivals got canceled. And then we have a band together called Stone Poets and you know, twenty five shows over, you know, twenty twenty were canceled when COVID happened and with no money coming in, with no money from streaming, I mean there's there's nothing. 
You know, it's just so brutal. So we're we're asking the government to, you know, step up because they've not protected us against those streaming yeah, companies. You. I'll, I'll get I'll get the word out about that because we need some help. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I was OK. I was in the position where I actually had some dough, you know, so we were OK. Mm-hmm. But I found during when COVID hit and I saw my, my guys every week we were giving money away to guys doing those little shows from their house. Mm-hmm. Cause I would see their kids running around and I, I looked at my gal. I said, these guys are starving to death yeah. and they got families, you know? Mm-hmm. So even though we couldn't afford it, we gave money away to all these people. Every, every Sunday we would go on and catch a bunch of them and send them a hundred here, a hundred there until Cheryl finally said, you know, you're going to run out of money if you don't stop doing this. Mm-hmm. But I just felt so bad with them. And then, of course, we had the book ready. And the other thing, I don't know if you've seen Shop Greg Godovitz, which uh, this is how why we're doing these things, yes. where, pe- where people can get my books from. Yes. Uh, my daughter and my girlfriend set up a little business for me. And over in December, we, we sold enough of this product on there to put four months' rent in the bank. Wow. I mean, so I was so happy I finished this book when I did, man, because we we wouldn't have had anything going on. We'd be in poverty. We'd be out in the street. Yeah, exactly. But now I have to keep, and and I'm I'm doing this. I'm talking myself hoarse every day doing this because I got to keep the wheels greased Mm -hmm. so that people will continue to go out and buy. I don't care if they buy the Kindle book or if they buy the hardcover book. You know, we've got posters and we've got... uh, I have my own hot sauce now. And- I know. I wanted to talk to you about that, actually. <laughs> That's a pretty uh, interesting name for a hot sauce. In God, well, we trust cock on hot sauce. Well, I have a song called Cock On. So that, and of course, you know, cock is like a, a, a bird, yes. like a chicken. Yeah. So it made sense. Uh, I didn't come up with any of it. Once again, Mark from the downtown young BIA, his daughter, Kara, works for a Calgary company called boreal cuisine and the guy wade patterson that runs the company turns out when he found out that not only kara's dad knew me but my former girlfriend's brother was like my brother-in-law he was working for him so he says jesus i love that guy Mm. so i sent him a copy of my book and i sent him some cds and he sent me back a bottle of this sauce and, of course, I looked at it, my eyebrows raised up, and I looked at Cheryl, and I said, do you think of what I'm thinking? She goes, oh, yeah. So I called up Mark, and I said, do you think, Wade? He says, oh, yeah. <laughs> and all, all of a sudden, we're in the hot sauce business. Wow. That's awesome. Well, we're going to definitely yeah. order some. So you've nurtured and produced albums for a number of artists, and a lot of artists listen to the show. What advice can you suggest to artists in this current climate with everything we've been talking about? Uh, don't lose hope. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess off the top of my head, that's the first thing I would think. I mean, it, it's it's horrible what's going. I mean, the music business is effectively shut down. Yeah. My my gal worked for thirty six years. She started uh, with her boyfriend at the time, uh, Westbury National Show Systems, which was the biggest production company in this com- country. And uh, they closed their doors during COVID. A thousand people out of jobs. Oh my God! Including herself. Wow. So that's it's not just affecting the show-offs on stage. Mm-hmm. It's affecting everybody. The guy that pours the beer in the venue. The yeah. guy that sells the tickets. The uh, the guy that designs the posters. All of us. Sound guys, are, are, lighting, everybody. everybody. Yeah. Yeah, the crew guys. Everybody is hurt. Yeah. 
But, you know, people are making things, you know, doing shows online and stuff. I really don't want to do that, but I'm prepared to leg it out. I got enough other things to keep myself occupied right now. Mm -hmm. Uh, The next thing I'm going to do is I'm going to write a musical. That's that's the next one I'm going to do. Okay, that's awesome. I've had had an idea for many years on a really unique. uh, it, It would be a band related musical. And it would all happen from stage right, and then everything would move by the scenes to the center, over until it ended on stage left. So it would be like a moving thing, like because it's called the van. It's going to be about when a group gets packs up their van at the end of the show, and then they they go on the road, and then the whole side of the van would come up, and you see all the guys inside the van now. And then they stop at the truck stop and those horrible things that used to happen at truck stops. Mm -hmm. And then they pick up a hitchhiker or two. Yeah. And then they arrive at the next gig and it would all be done with music and and dialogue. And I, no one's ever done anything. No. So original. You've got a lot of really great ideas. Holy. Well, you know, it's the only thing that I haven't lost is my sense of humor and the part of my brain that does the creating shit, you know? Mm Mm-hmm. The rest of me is falling apart. I mean, you know, I'd kill for if I took better care of my teeth. Oh. Yeah. I would kill if I had some hair. Some hair. (laughs) Shave it. (laughs) Just shave it off. I have. Who did you say? Did you say soda? No, no. Just just shave it off. Yeah. Actually, I I was with Frank Soda when he shaved himself. I said, hey, Frank, we're both losing our hair. Let's go get it shaved off. And we went. He went in first, then he came out and said, I ain't doing that. Oh, that's hilarious. You're like, you go first. Yeah. And then I say, I ain't, I ain't doing that. No, it looks great. My husband actually is bald. It's fantastic. Yeah. yeah, well, you might have a nice shaped head, right? You have to have a nice shaped head, definitely. Yeah. No, no. I've, I've, been, I've been beaten over the head by old ladies with umbrellas for years. I've probably got lumps <laughs> and bumps. The, you know, I, the joke I used to tell on stage, I said, you know, I said... Uh, I got wavy hair. It's uh, it's waving goodbye. It's waving goodbye. Uh, yeah. I said, but you know, I go to the barbershop now. The guy spends, tell me if this happens to you. I go to the barbershop these days and the guy spends more time on my nose and my ears than he spends on my head. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Stand-up comedian Stand coming up, Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And we, we got to talk about your books. I've been making you talk about all your music, which I absolutely am so appreciative of that. But um, So your first book, Travels With My Amp, was super successful, went to three printings. And I know that people expected your new book to be a continuation of those stories. Yeah. I, I'm hoping that you can share one road story with me and it doesn't have to be toned down. Well, G- Give me one of your wildest you know, stories you can share. I I started writing part two of Travels because Travels ended in 1984. So it was 64 to 84. So I started writing, I wrote about 150 pages. And to me, it was just boring because it was the same bloody same, you know? Mm-hmm. And and I think my catchphrase I had was, how many blowjob stories will people swallow? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You know? Yeah, exactly. So I, I just I pushed it aside and said, no, I'm going to write a completely different kind of book. You know, I, I'm going to write a unstuck in time book like uh, Kurt Vonnegut did with uh, 
Slaughterhouse-Five with the hero Billy Pilgrim. He was unstuck in time. And I said, I'm going to become unstuck in time in this new book where I can tell you a story about what happened yesterday, but I can also tell you about a story that happened 40 years ago and make it all funny and make it so that it's a cohesive entity at the end. And that's what I did. So, I mean, the road stories continue forever. But like I said, you know, like how much of that stuff, you know, I've already done it. Mm -hmm. You know, I already had the sex, drugs and rock and roll thing. So now in the new book, I've got a story about going to scout camp with this guy who is a psycho. This this story itself could be turned into a movie. It would be like that Stephen King movie. uh, What they call it? it was after that. Stand by me. Remember where the kids go out looking for the body oh, on the yeah. train track? Okay. Well, this story could be that. It's it's got the same energy and you know what eleven year old boys are like when they're at scout camp. Mm-hmm. Character development, and I'm thinking somebody will read this and go, "Boy, that would make a hell of a movie, man!" You know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you know, I have uh, like yesterday, for instance, I had an Elvis impersonator show up at my door. Oh. In in full Elvis drag. When you get on my Facebook, you'll see the video I took of him. Okay, cool. And I have a story in my new book called Elvis is Alive and Well and Living in Collingwood when they have the big Elvis festival. And it's a humorous look at the Elvi lifestyle of, you know, thousands of people walking around a small Toronto or northern Ontario village dressed like Elvis. You know? Oh, jeez. And then there's, you know, stories of, once again about Gatto falling apart, you know, how going in to record a song and one of the guys just couldn't play anymore, you know, until I just said, get him out of here. I'll mm-hmm. do it. Mm-hmm. So there's, it, it's like a multifaceted book, you know. Uh, I just didn't want to write another, another, uh, I, I just didn't want to repeat myself and I did. There's no, I don't think there's any story in the new book that is marginally like the ones in the other one. And yet there's still stories about hanging out with uh you know jeff healy and steve lukather and then lukather introducing me to ringo star there's a lot of that stuff for people that want that kind of story Mm -hmm. you know uh i also have a couple of recipes (laughs) people always see the food piece the food that we cook at home because we're foodies and they said you should write a cookbook and i said well so i i wrote a story called i hate my kitchen tonight's dinner and uh, it's like five pages long where I'm making what Cheryl calls my Godzilla Caesar salad dressing because it's really hot. And uh, this other thing I call Moroccan olive pasta surprise. Mm-hmm. And and it's the whole menu, all the ingredients and everything. But instead of like you get to like number three and it says instead of like another ingredient going in, it says, hey, hey, you. Yeah. Uh, listen, you see that nice bottle of wine that you bought for tonight's dinner? Go ahead, open it up, have a little swig. You know, oh, okay. and then it goes into the next thing. So by the time the guy, if he follows my instructions, he's probably three bottles and three sheets to the wind, drunk <laughs> while he serves the food, right? And so he's like, this once, guy's talking to me. Yeah, it's, it's funny. And so for Valentine's Day, I made both of uh, Cheryl, who I call Mrs. Claypool, uh, which is a Marx Brothers joke. Uh, and she's she's become famous. People come up to her in the street. Go, Are you Mrs. Claypool? She goes. As a matter of fact, I am. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> she, she just plays along with it, right? <laughs> uh, she requested for her Valentine's dinner that I make both of these dishes, 
Uh, and then, of course, what do I do? I know it's it's an opportunity to hide my book. I said, by the way, both of these recipes are in my new book. Yeah. So if you want to find out how to make this delicious looking food, you just have to put out 30 bucks and there you go. Exactly. Wow. Well, just everything that you've said is enticing. I'm sure everybody that's listening to get the book, but I just wanted to read something that Eddie Kramer actually wrote. So he said, after I read Greg's second attempt at trying to beat Shakespeare at his own game, I realized that his personal observations about the real world of rock and roll are just bloody brilliant. I urge anyone out there who wants to have a belly laugh at the absurdities of life on and off the road with one of Canada's true originals, read this damn book and be prepared for extra underwear and a box of Kleenex. That's awesome. I have to admit, when I read that, I, you know, I, I thought, boy, how lucky am I? Yeah. I mean, if somebody had told me back when I first heard the Jimi Hendrix "Are You Experienced" album that Eddie Kramer would be one of my best friends someday, mm-hmm. I would have said, "Yeah, pull yeah. the other one." No but as life turns out, um, you know. Uh, that's how it's become. They even came down, the house that I finished writing the book in that Mrs. Claypool rented for me in Prince Edward County in Picton. She found a 200-year-old house, heritage house, and I moved in and finished writing the book there. And Eddie and AJ came down, uh, spent a week with us, and uh, they would go out to the wineries and stuff. Then I finished the book and we would go out for dinners and stuff. And then about six months ago, uh, with COVID raging and everything, Eddie called me and said, we want to get out of Toronto. Do you think you can organize getting us that house to move into? And that's where they're living now. Oh, wow. So I said, I said, well, this is great. And he says, how so? I said, well, instead of me paying the rent and you mooch is coming in, now you pay the rent and I'm the mooch. <laughs> Have you been to see him? Oh, yeah. I helped yeah. him move in. Oh, Awesome. Yeah, I couldn't walk for a week afterwards. Uh, my age going up and down stairs a thousand times with heavy objects? No thanks. Oh, jeez. <laughs> He's okay. really good to me. He gives me great gifts. You know, I got in the mail yesterday. I got his uh, Hendrix Live at Maui that Eddie just finished doing. Oh, really? And, and Eddie wrote right on the cover to the funniest guy I've ever met. So. Wow. Oh, don't you just feel blessed? Yeah, that's exactly the word I, I would use is blessed. And with a heavy dose of incredible good luck. Everybody always says, are you sad that you didn't make it as big as you wanted to? I said, dude, I can't go anywhere without someone stopping me. Yeah. I said, I go into a restaurant, someone sends me a bottle of wine. I've had a guy give me a full set of tires for my car. I mean, yeah. I'm a happy guy, man. You yeah, know? and it's that whole thing, like, what is making it mean? I think to every individual artist, making yeah. it as their own journey. Yeah, does your does your husband play at the Commodore? Um, well, we both have, yes. Yeah, you made it, both of you. Yeah, totally. <laughs> you know, That's we've as toured. Good as it gets. Yeah, we've toured yeah. around the world. I mean, yeah, I'm I'm yeah. super blessed for my life as well. Yeah. So, what, what did you play in a band with your husband? Well, we do right now. We have a band called Stone Poets, which is a folk trio. But we also have a rock band called Head. I have the rest of the day off, so I'm going to be doing some snooping on you guys. Oh, that's awesome. I'm hoping that you'd be willing to read just a short section of the book. Would you be able to do that? Would you feel comfortable? Yeah. Yeah. I'll read you the first page because there's a a famous author in Toronto named Richard Flohill. He's English. He came here many years ago. And uh, he called me up. He loves my writing. And he's a real writer. He says, you really should start your book off. He says, 
stories about your cats and your sinister scoutmasters are all well and good. He says, but you really should write, read something or write something that people can relate to you as a musician, you know? So I thought, okay, Richard, you know, hang on, I got to see if I can do this without getting fried. It. Oh, I got to shock off that too. Oh, no. Yeah, Mr. I always figure I'm one of those guys that's going to self-implode where you blow up. <laughs> Not on my interview. Yeah, we never know. <laughs> so it's the word forward. Now, in my first book, well, I'll get to that. It's here. Okay. Okay. Tell me if you can still hear me while I'm reading. Yeah, no, that's great. Okay. Before we get started, I have a confession to make. I sent Mike Myers a request to write the foreword to Travels with My Aunt. I misspelled the actual word F-O-R-E-W-R-R-D, forward, as F-O-R-W-A-R-D, and Mike probably thought I was an idiot. He declined to write the foreword, W-A-R-D, which was understandable and which was unacceptable given my spelling faux pas. So I use it as the forward slash foreword anyway. Apparently, Mike wasn't happy, but the damage was already done. Sorry, Mike, enough of that. I recently mailed a few of the early coil-bound copies of this book to certain friends of mine to get a bit of feedback. Music historian and scribe Richard Flohill was one of them. Back in the old days, he was known as Dick Flohill. Now we call him Richard. I call him Richard. He calls me Godowitz. I have corrected him on numerous occasions as the correct, correct pronunciation of my actual name, but he reached out to me the other day to offer a suggestion or two after a cursory examination of this new Godowitz book. His main suggestion was that I forgo, forgo stories about my dreaded cat, Picky, and dangerous Boy Scout troop leader in favor of a good old rock and roll story to kick the whole thing off. He said, it's something people know you for. And he was absolutely correct. In my defense, I did mention that I didn't want a repeat of Travels with My Amp, so I opted for short, stupid stories instead. If memory serves, I believe my actual words were, how many more blowjob stories will people swallow? So having said all that, for my highly respected friend Richard Slash Dick, here is a rock and roll story that no one else has ever heard before. Once upon a time, back in the early 70s, my group Flood opened for George Clinton's Parliament Funkadelic. Flood was as straight as six o'clock. White bread as all get out. P-Funk, not so much. We were appearing at the London Gardens in, wait for it, London, Ontario. I can't remember much about our performance, but I'm sure it was fabulous. The next thing I do remember is that this Afro-American dude in a baby diaper asked me to sit in with P-Funk for their opening number, playing the guitar, which I did. I got to jam with George Clinton's band. So, little Gregory Guy Godovitz of Westbourne Avenue in Scarborough has opened up these peculiar festivities with a rock and roll or funk story, and I hope Richard is happy. And now, and that's where it goes. Wow. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. You, you know, everybody keeps asking me to do an audio book, but I, I read so fast that my mouth can't, which is impossible for most people to understand, my mouth can't keep up with what my brain's doing. Oh, okay. It would, it would it would take me five years to record a book. I mean, mm. I know I could do it with all the inflections and maybe throw a song in, but I mean, I stumbled four times over one page there. Yeah, you could if always get somebody to do it for you. No, nah, no, nah, it no. wouldn't be the same. Yeah, I mean, I I know how all of these people spoke, you know. Mm, so if, right, if there's accents, I could do their accents and do all that. 
other yeah. stuff, you know. Yes, exactly. We'll see what happens at some point. Yeah, but, you never know. That's yeah. fantastic. So people can find that book up close and uncomfortable. Travels with my amp, your music, and um, all your other great things that people can buy, like the hot sauces on your <laughs> shop, GregGodovitz.com. Yes, not God of Wits with a W, like no. Richard uh, Thornhill says. He, he said it, I went to visit him the other day because, you know, he's like in his 80s and he was a bit lonely, so I went to visit him. And he still calls me God of Wits. Does he really? <laughs> I, said, I said, Richard, I've known you for 50 bloody years. Isn't it about time you got my name right? Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> How can people find you on social media? So you, you probably, are you on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter? Yeah I'm, yeah, I'm on just on Facebook. Um, I only have the one, and uh, in his infinite uh, lack of wisdom, Zuckerberg only gives you 5,000 friends. I know. I guess they run out of cyber paper after that. I don't know how it works, but but occasionally I go in, and I'll go through the 5,000 people, and I see a bunch of blank faces that I click, click on, and they're either dead, mm-hmm. or they've had, they've had enough of my bullshit, and they've gone <laughs> elsewhere. So that, then I go through, get rid of them, and then uh, add people, which is what I'm about to do for you and, and Mark. Oh, right fantastic. Now. Thank you so much for being on Make a Scene Canada. I am looking forward to reading your book and uh, finding all those stories. There's one that we didn't get a chance to talk about that I can't wait about the alien and you've been implanted with uh, in the back of your brain because you sat beside an alien on the plane. So I'm looking forward to that yes, one. Strange, but unusually true. Yes, uh, I can't wait. So, and uh, looking forward to all your upcoming adventures. Well, thanks very much. It's been great talking to you. And uh, I hope at some point, someday, we, we all get to play music together somewhere. That the Commodore. Awesome. We'll, the Commodore. We'll headline at the Commodore. That sounds fantastic. Uh, and the last thing i just like to say is I'd like to thank everybody that's listening to your show for s- supporting my music. Uh, I know it's been a very bumpy ride these last 50-odd years. Uh, and I'm, I'm very thank- thankful for the support. Awesome. And by the way, you know, my brother Gary, who happens to uh, have a birthday on this very day, March the 27th, uh, happy birthday, brother. Awesome. I wrote uh, I wrote under my hat about him. Oh, okay. I'm going to listen to that a little bit differently now. You should see if you can find the Eddie Kramer remix on uh, on my Greg Godovich YouTube. I think it's up there. Okay. And make make sure that, Mark, you listen to it with headphones on because Eddie's magic was what he did inside the headphones. Ah, okay. Yeah, there's lots of swirly things panning around inside there, but it's magnificent sounding. Awesome. I'll definitely do that. So if you're, if you're going to play a Gatto song on the show, maybe you can play that one. Have you got the answer? 
made up my mind And I've thought this thing through I'm searching for love, searching for love I'm starting with you Nobody but you 
That was Under My Hat, the Eddie Kramer remix by Gatto, and Searching for Love solo Greg. Don't forget to head over to Greg's website and get his books, Travels with My Amp, and his new book, Up Close and Uncomfortable. His music and his hot sauce. Find them all at shopgreggodovitz.com. Now, you heard me talking about Canadian Musicians Coalition petition to keep music alive in Canada. So it has been, as I mentioned, tabled right now in the House of Commons. But we need you to send a letter to your MP to get them to support petition E2995. So head over to CanadianMusiciansCoalition.ca and there you will be able to find the letter, um, copy and paste it and send it out to your MPs. We really need to make this happen. And that's the show. I'm always so grateful to share our Canadian artists and their music with you, as well as our industry movers and shakers stories. Leave Pacific Northwest Radio on 24-7. It's music online all the time. You can find all my past shows on demand. Click the Make a Scene Canada icon on the homepage of Pacific Northwest Radio. As well, you can find Make a Scene Canada on Spotify, iTunes, iHeartRadio, plus a whole array of sites that you can subscribe to. It's all waiting for you to discover. Big shout out to my Make a Scene Canada sponsor, Sheldon Zaharko from Zed Productions. All you rock stars ready to record your new album or single, check out Zed Productions at SheldonZaharko.com. The music that you're listening to right now is from my band Stone Poets, recorded with Sheldon, and you can hear more at stonepoets.ca or listen to my rock side head at headmusic.ca and you can find me and all my projects at shereljardine.ca and please get in touch because I love hearing from you. Now take a few minutes out of your day and share our Canadian artists, make a scene Canada and Pacific Northwest Radio on social media. Okay, signing off now. Thanks again for listening. Until next time, let's make a scene Canada. Too close to the sun Feels better if you just start falling Falling, the air is calling you to run away. 